Hey folks and welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week we're going to be sitting down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching. Both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The Daily Ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing... Flying Down to Rio, directed by Thornton Freeland. We have Body Double by Brian De Palma. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind by George Clooney. We have newly released Orion in the Dark by Sean Charmatz. And finally, Lisa Frankenstein, directed by Zelda Williams. It is going to be an awesome show, folks. Stay tuned and enjoy. Vincent Daly, how we doing, buddy? Tommy boy, how's it going? Uh, it's going okay for me. How was your week of movies, Ben? A week was was pretty good. Uh, I I think it was a little bit all over the place, but uh, mostly because I feel like Lisa Frankenstein kind of throws things off, and throws a, a wrench in the works. Well, uh, Lisa, yeah, we do have. Le- I wouldn't say a wrench in the works. I would say we're in our we are in our you know January February schlock ish <laughs> yeah, area yeah, for real. For real. Um, and then we have flying down to Rio <laughs> from nineteen thirty three. Second Fred Astaire movie ever. Ever. This is the earliest Fred Astaire movie I've watched. It's earlier than Top Hat, which is always referred to as like his first like really big role. Right. And he look he's so young looking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, finish up on our finishing up our Brian De Palma study as well. Thank (laughs) God. I'll tell you I mean I would have to probably look back and see all of the director studies or the writer studies that we've done. Uh, I think De Palma is definitely the least successful so far. Yeah, it's again. It's weird to have him do Scarface. I know it's shocking that's the almost. anomaly. That is the anomaly for sure. Um, and then we have Orion in the Dark, which was on my kind of looking forward to in twenty twenty four because yeah. written by uh, Charlie Kaufman. Yep, absolutely. Uh, which we'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, I kind of like this. It's a different week. It's got kind of all over the place, which I like. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. Oh, uh, what? You have any opening notes? <laughs> I was gonna say uh, we could talk about Super Bowl trailer uh, talk, and I literally have. Have like one thing to say. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I would just say I, I'm not the biggest Deadpool fan. I'm not the biggest Ryan Reynolds fan. Yeah, for uh, sure. No, no stranger uh, to to the listeners uh, at home. Uh, but uh, podcast wide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a podcast meme. <laughs> uh, no good on Ryan Reynolds. But I think Deadpool and Wolverine has some potential. It's okay. The, oh, yeah, it, all right. My that's... only argument here is that it is the only MCU movie coming out. Proper from Marvel in this year, the only one. Wow! So I didn't know that. I, I'm hoping maybe one uh, quality over quantity, right? For one, and maybe we get that CGI budget figured out. <laughs> Marvel, uh, but two. I mean, 
I definitely am nervous about the Disneyification of you know this this comedic style that Ryan Reynolds has. But uh, let me tell you, I think if there was a concept to work, uh, it's Deadpool getting pulled around and being in a very meta story. That yeah. is Deadpool to a T uh, in the comic books. And um, yeah, people like the first two. Yeah, and yeah. honestly, like I, I wasn't aware that it was the only movie mm-hmm. this year, but it makes sense that they're now. I mean, it doesn't come out until is it fall I think August? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the fact that we're like getting hit with trailers already yeah. now, it's like okay, the hype machine. Well, the thing is, that, oh, there were so many leaked uh, foot, uh, leaked, right, yeah. leaked photos online of you know Hugh Jackman in, in the suit and, and and whatnot. So I will say this is the same thing that happened with Dial of Destiny last year. Oh, really? I think the trailer was out for Super Bowl, mm. and then we saw what happened there. <laughs> I think it's safe yeah. to say, hopefully, we got a better movie than that. Uh, yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> but but that's really my only thought. My only the the other notes I said, Wicked looks bad, and uh, I could care less about Quiet Place Day One. So that's the end okay. of the trailer talk. I guess. Uh, there was. One other uh, twisters. Oh, which, I didn't see it. Okay, I didn't see the video. It look. It looks. Uh, we're gonna see. Yeah, we're gonna see how the CGI is. Why is there some Glenn Powell getting pushed so much? I mean, oh, who... he's a handsome fella, and <laughs> oh, you swear, and he's good at acting. <laughs> I think. I know he. I, it's funny how much he's taking off. Yeah, and he's take. I think he's like thirty five or like between okay. like thirty five and thirty eight. Mm-hmm. So it's weird that it's happening now because mm-hmm. I feel like he's getting the. Tom Holland slash Timothy mm, Chalamet. That's a great treatment. Great read. when they went through their cra- you know what I mean. Yep, With like definitely or- the uh, the Tom Holland side of that. They each had like a two or three year period yep. where it's like they're the guy. Yep, but in their younger twenties or mid twenties, mm. this mm. Glenn Powell's getting it a little bit later. But it was he was slowly coming up and he was getting more recognized. Then Top Gun happened. Mm. Now anyone but you is still kind of just hitting, like has this little cult following Ouch, and everything. Right, right, right. And he's getting some serious stuff now. Well. We'll he see. looks good in it. I don't know about the main actress, <laughs> and I don't know about the CGI and Twisters. Yeah, but we'll see. I, I forget if we said it on the podcast, but I've never yes, I've never seen Twisters. But then I also I was trying to remember. I was like, I think I've seen Twisters because Twister. I yeah. re- oh right, right, Twister. Because uh, <laughs> I I remember some device that they release like bubbles. Or yeah, something yeah, yeah. Like that. Okay, and so maybe was, I have seen it. And there was know. a shout out to that in the trailer as well. Oh really? Okay, that's the CGI that I'm worried about. Oh. But Glenn Powell looks – I mean, I feel like he's just – they needed to get a new uh, Ryan – I feel like they needed a new Ryan Gosling. Oh, okay. Okay, getting, interesting. Oh, Gosling's getting a little older now. Oh, I, I've, been, I've been ringing that bell <laughs> since he was cast as Ken. I mean, the dude looks geriatric sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I am getting <laughs> – With that bleach blonde hair. No, no thanks. I do – Glenn Powell I get a little bit of a young uh, Brad Pitt vibes from. Really? I, he's not, his acting isn't there. I'm not Brad sold Pitt's yet. Brad Pitt's a really good actor. I, I won't trash him, but I'm not sold yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet either. I just yeah. think that's a box he's being pushed into. Oh, uh, marketing-wise. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. But anyway, we'll see. Twister. So that was also another thing mm. where it's like, okay, it's real. I don't know. We'll see. It's real. <laughs> it's real. They put an S on it. Uh, it's no Lisa Frankenstein, I'm sure. Uh. <laughs> but okay, we're going to jump back to 1933, Vin. We're continuing with our Fred Astaire study, yeah. which is the longest ongoing study. Yeah, it's Fred Astaire month. It's, it's, right. You know what I mean? 
So February. this is <laughs> Flying Down to Rio, uh, directed by Thornton Freeland. Yeah, oh, we, were saying, we were saying pre-podcast folks. Thornton Freeland. Can you think of a, a more 1933 <laughs> name than Thornton Freeland? I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Yeah. <laughs> okay, many, my first child, Thornton. Yeah, I was going to say how many, how many Thorntons were born in 2024 <laughs> and 2023. Uh, flying down to Rio, Vin, how did we like one of his earliest roles? Uh, yeah, well, uh, we go from one of the latest Fred movies uh, from last week to one of the earliest. Um, 1933 marks two years before even the earliest films I've personally seen a stare in and really is the last on my list for iconic dances because uh, uh, Fred is in a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. He's not always dancing. And that's really the what I want to kind of capture uh, for February, being a study of, uh, of rom-coms before, rom-coms of as we know them, and for iconic dancing on screen. And yeah, that, was, musicals. that was the impetus of it. I mean, really, this was one of our first studies that we have done like this is pre-podcast yeah pre-podcast you started on fred absolutely yeah absolutely always kind of enjoying his films but then like never getting around to watching a lot of films so and uh, also having that put aside i mean i don't think most people have actually sat down and watched a fred astaire thing Mm. i think if they saw him on screen they would kind of maybe recognize that number recognize Mm. that number Mm -hmm. so it's nice also to you know have the red string in the back of your bedroom (laughs) Helping us out where to put all this, you know what I mean? All these Fred clips of the actual films that they belong in. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we'll talk uh, in in just a second about what next week will be in in lieu of the accursed Madam Web, <laughs> speaking of red strings. But uh, <laughs> this this really does mark the uh, the 18th Astaire film we've reviewed, either pre-podcast or otherwise. Oh, wow, I didn't know. Uh, and while certainly <laughs> there's a lot more to his career, I, I, I really say, I, I confidently say, uh, we've covered nearly all of the best. Uh, and next week we will be releasing our uh, Fred Astaire, Essential Fred Astaire special uh, that we will hopefully talk about some of those iconic dances that people can recognize just by the look yeah. of it. You but know, ones that bridge the gap. Films that we have not yet covered. Right. Covered pre podcast and rated yeah. on the site if uh, anyone wants to be a sleuth out there. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, 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 for the most part, yeah, nothing. Uh, in fact, over the course of the podcast, any time I've come across a Fred Astaire movie that I think has been a contender, I've actually put it aside. And there's really only one that is maybe in the running okay. uh, for that. Gotcha. So, this movie falls in the golden age, though, of Fred Astaire and his many musical comedies paired up with the equally sensational dancer, Ginger Rogers. These film, These early films, they always cast them in showbiz or some type of performing orchestra as a logical reason for having a story centered around music, which in the wave of musicals, I really do appreciate. Uh, it's it's a, a minor compliment to these movies, but I would love if in these wave of new musicals that there was a logic to why they're singing because it oh, works yeah. in these old ones because it's like, yeah, they're performing, you know? Uh, that goes, so. that goes. I wonder when that really died, mm. but it has, it has, that has not been that way in a long time. Yeah, that's like, a great question. Do you think the remake, do you think Hairspray with Ooh. Travolta, do you think that even had that formula? <laughs> When it came out, I, I've never seen Hairspray, <laughs> believe it or not. But uh, I, yeah, don't they sing on like a contestant game show type of thing? I don't. Oh, okay, okay. wrong guy. You're the one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Stabbing in the dark. But you know what I mean. Like I, that whole thing of it's a musical, and there's actually elements in the film that make right. sense to have dancing and music. Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, my favorite, which is um, 
White Christmas. Mm, right. It's about a music show going <laughs> exactly, on. Exactly. Kind of. Exactly. So they have, there's been, and I think that's why I have such a uh, visceral hatred, hatred <laughs> reaction, a, a vomitous kind of reaction to modern day right. musicals. Yeah, you're right there. Because with, as soon I would as say they, good fifty percent of America. Okay, good. Maybe more. Well, yeah. don't forget. I mean, I refuse, and I know <laughs> I refuse to see <laughs> La La Land. <laughs> right, right. I haven't really sat down and watched it because as soon as it starts, you know, as soon as the, the tune starts. <laughs> It's almost like I get blush red, and it's like I gotta, I gotta walk I gotta. out of here. I'm embarrassed for everybody involved. I'm embarrassed. But anyway, so that's what we're, we're dealing with something that actually makes sense. Exactly, yeah. it, it's a minor compliment, but one that came up, especially in the wave of, of, of reviewing these musicals, uh-huh. and uh, uh, and again, my my latest beef of the Broadway bland type of stylings to it. But um, what surprised me here is both Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire are. This is so early in their career that they are only supporting characters to a much larger love story that um, I would say held up pretty well. But once again, like Finian's Rainbow, we're at the the bottom of the barrel of finding it's Fred specifically, Mm -hmm. or it's Fred and Ginger specifically, them only being on the sidelines. In Flying Down to Rio... A dapper band leader played by Gene Raymond falls in love with a gorgeous Brazilian aristocrat uh, played by Dolores Del Rio. The only issue is that their new employer happens to be her fiancé, putting Fred in the middle of breaking up things before they're kicked out of Brazil entirely. Uh, I would say, believe it or not, some of the comedy beats really held up here. There was a solid joke that kind of felt right out of Airplane in how okay. it was set Ooh, up. All right. I was really surprised by it. Uh, and uh, it, it's about them being stranded on an island and then it turns out to be a golf course. Uh, <laughs> okay. and it, just, it just felt, I don't know, the, the timing of it, it just felt very airplane. Uh, and, and let me tell you, <laughs> the the type of semi-marketing there is to the concept of flying in 1933 in this film. Um, uh, 1933 <laughs> flying <nuts>. looks terrifying. <laughs> uh, this would not ever... I, I mean, I would never step foot in a plane if this was, like, my first experience. That's such a good point. <laughs> That's such a good point. They have to fit a piano into, like, a biplane. It's a biplane. <laughs> it's not... like I, I. This is, like, Wright Brothers shit right here. <laughs> they have to fit a piano in one point, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Only two people can fit in. Man, uh, terrifying. Absolutely Weight's terrifying. a big deal. you got to be concerned about weight and distribution. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's unreal. I, I would say uh, my main problem with this one is just not enough dancing. The first sequence, dance sequence we get, is about 45 minutes in, uh, right in line with Fred and Ginger uh, only being supporting roles. Mm-hmm. I would say... Dancing-wise, tap and Latin, I would say, are awkwardly separated at times. And this is something that we'll see Fred actually grow to conquer in 1953's The Bandwagon, uh, and very successfully. Uh, It's weird. They almost put the Latin dancers separate and then tap uh, with Fred and Ginger on its own type of uh, platform. Uh, We do get some very crazy, elaborate sequences. I mean, I don't know what the budget was on this back in 33, but it's just like... Why did they put so much money towards these sets? It's really <laughs> elaborate sets. Um, we get a rotating eight piano octagon that is a stage oh, they dance. Hell on. yeah! It's hell wild. Yeah. That's awesome. And like <laughs> they're all playing. I mean, maybe they're not really playing. They're probably not really playing. But like, it's like 
Who thought of that in the concept art stage? Like, yeah, we're going to put eight pianos, and it's going to be the stage. Like you said, that's golden age, man. That's just, <laughs> just like, hey, let's just do it. Let's you know? do it. Right, right. And, of course, uh, the title track, uh, which is accompanied by the insane idea of dancers strapped to the biplanes flying around. <laughs> There's a point that a dancer falls, which is like played for a comedic beat, and she is caught by another plane. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely insane. I love it. Yeah, I love it. It's just very, very, very cheesy, very campy, but like uh, very enjoyable. Um, to be fair, when I'm looking at these dance uh, sequences, I was a little starved because I wanted more of it. There's really only these two major ones okay. here uh, that are worth it. So overall, a very cute movie. Uh, but doesn't beat out some of the later all-time greats. I mean, even later, just a few short years from uh, nearly everyone in this production. There are even a lot of supporting comedic characters. Uh, the butler, for instance, is stays with Fred and Ginger for like the next six films. So we see this kind of as a ramp uh, into what we know those two legends and dancing legends to be, but still worth checking out. And uh, if anything, to be surprised by how much the comedy... And the film has held up despite its very, very old age. We're going to go ahead and give Flying Down to Rio, 1933, a 64. Okay, a 64% is really not that bad. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it actually. held up more wow. than I thought. And I think it's, it's in yeah, the joke. That's a good it's movie. A, yeah, that's a good right. movie. Right. Wow, okay. And it's only an hour and 29, so oh. which is nice, breezy. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so that is... So is that... How many more Freds? That's it. That's and, it. Until... Well, next week, the the elephant in the room is <laughs> Madam Web. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's getting very bad reviews. It's getting worse reviews than Morbius. Uh, I don't want to watch it. Okay. <laughs> I also it's, don't really want to watch this um, Bob Marley biopic, a music biopic, mm. uh, coming out. So uh, next week, we will be doing the uh, essential Fred Astaire. In that episode, we're going to talk about what's going to happen for Fe- February's to come uh, since we're, we're... Closing the book. Yeah. <laughs> Close to the book on Fred. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah. And so, and by the way, just real quick on Madam Web, it is not a Marvel Disney proper. Release. No, That's a, it's Sony, Sony pictures. Yeah. Uh, which basically only Spider Man. You know. So. Uh, and Morbius. Uh, Spider Man. Uh, same with Craven the Hunter coming out. Still uh, a Spider-Man rogue. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And th- right. That's why we get the Venom movies from them. Exactly. Uh, I exactly. see. I see. Okay. So, and I, for what it's worth, you know, Sony can produce gold. Uh, the Spider-Verse movies arguably are some of the best superhero movies to come out, period. Yeah. But uh, at the same time. Can be super trash. Yeah. They do not know when to quit. This Madam Web movie looks god-awful and... Uh, much like Blue Beetle, I just I have I less less than zero interest. Well, well, I don't think it's gonna I don't think it's gonna do well. People clam, clamoring for it. Yeah. So yeah. that's uh, yeah. I, I like the idea of we're gonna have a big bash with Fred. Yeah. Close the book on him. Say good night, and then that's it. <laughs> say good night. Uh, Hang up the tap shoes. Speaking of finishing up a film study, yeah. uh, we are jumping to 1984. This film is Body Double by Brian mm. De Palma. So yep. the whole idea between this, because he made four films in consecutive years, 81, 82, 83, 84. Yep. We did Just to Kill, then Blowout. Yep. We did Scarface, and we're back here at Body Double. Yep. And I say back here because we are really <laughs> in the same vein as what I think Blowout yep. and Dress to Kill. I watched this as well, mm. so it'll be fun to get into it. 
just want to make one note as well. Sure, sure. It was after he made the first three that mm-hmm. we just discussed, Dress to Kill, Blowout, and Scarface. After the success of Scarface mm-hmm. is actually when he got a major three-picture deal mm. uh, with, I forget who it was, but one of the major... One of the major studios. Sure, sure. Uh, basically, he set up a contract, a three-picture contract, mm-hmm. and this was the first of that. Yeah. But I really feel like it's in the same vein as his first two. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and to be fair, in not so many years, he does do The Untouchables then, which we covered on an early I podcast know. episode. I remember – I haven't listened to that review in a very long time since posting it. Uh, I remember complaining that the violence wasn't where I wanted to be. Maybe it was good that he was breaking away from <laughs> you know the violence he was known for. So, so why don't you set it up for us today? <laughs> <laughs> He's exhausted, and then already. we can, then we can toss it back and forth. I'll tell you what, Tom. Next, you come up with the next director study. I'll, 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 I'm not mad about it. I'm no, not mad no, at you no. I know. Okay. <laughs> it's more so. I I don't know. Maybe I I need a I need a different judgment on where we should go next. A little bit more marketable than Brian the Palma. <laughs> Yeah, Body Double, uh, you know, it is the conclusion of De Palma's four-year run, uh, but a lot smaller scale than the mega hit that Scarface was last week. We are back to his wheelhouse of semi-erotic thrillers, and much like I praised uh, the writing in Blowout, the story has a real production spin that feels authentic because he is a professional in filmmaking and writing about Uh, a filmmaking story, Mm -hmm. ultimately. Uh, The story is about a struggling actor living in Hollywood, played by a relative no-name, Craig Wasson. Uh, I mean, Christ, his IMBD (laughs) or TB uh, pick is uh, the shot from the movie. (laughs) Like, that's his photo, yeah. Uh, Out of a job and living on someone else's dime, he becomes obsessed with a woman in a... Gross peeping Tom scenario. Uh, that one really lost me early. I, I understand that a concept in horror and thriller is that sometimes your main character is not going to be relatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes your main character is a is being set up as someone as a pin cushion uh, for evil things to happen to them. Mm-hmm. This one lost me real early though because I just feel like the tone of this character was like, yeah, he's he's an all right guy. And I'm, I'm watching this. I'm like, this guy's like gross. Like, <laughs> this is a scumbag. Yeah, it progressively gets there. Yeah. Because at the beginning, you're just like, oh, he's just a guy. Right. You know, meets this other guy. Now yep. he's doing this. And it's just like, oh, I can see that. You know, but, but it continues to get yeah. more and more creepy. Right, right. So uh, his actions are fueled by a false sense of protection. And when a grisly stalker starts going after his uh, quote unquote girl, uh, he spirals deeper into his own delusion, so deep, in fact, that he starts looking for his fantasy in a porn actress that is a near-identical body double. Uh, what complicates all of this is Wasson's character suffers from a debilitating syndrome that is uh, mysteriously triggered. Um, sometimes it's claustrophobia, sometimes it's psychological, but intentionally a mystery to us as the viewer. That setup right there, cinephiles at home will instantly recognize this element as either a nod or a blatant ripoff uh, of the 1958 classic Hitchcock's Vertigo. Identical, both in how it's staged as almost a secondary plotline in the thriller, 
and just like how it's not really explained and just like puts him on his ass, you know, every now and again. Yeah, I think it was, I mean, from the get go, I think it's pretty clear, mm. like whatever his condition type of deal. <laughs> right, right. What what movie did we just watch that it was, uh, that's right, it was uh, My Own Private Idaho <laughs> that somebody had a weird condition. <laughs> oh, that narcolepsy. Just, right, that, that kind of. Uh, you know, popped up here right. and there. Also very tone deaf. To, to add to know, the film. In the context of that film. Like. <laughs> it's funny how much this film is so compared to Hitchcock. That's always brought up. Again, mm. doing doing some research on the film or just seeing what other critics at the time thought about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the praise for this film yeah. and the linking of Hitchcock. Yeah. I, Isn't that I, nuts? I, I don't know Hitchcock. And yeah. I'm, I'm hoping like this year I want to tackle Absolutely. just for me and just you know get get my feet in there a little bit. Yep. I'm sure Brian De Palma loves film. I know there's callbacks from it. He's, it's, it's a bit of an homage in certain mm-hmm. ways, but also, I don't know. This is more so. This is so much slasher slock. Like this was like a, a, yeah, a gore it's, film. It's, it's, this, to like, me, it's not him working on. Yeah, it's it's not working off of Hitchcock. It's him working off of Dress to Kill. <laughs> it's the same movie in like so many aspects. Yep. I could connect these two. <laughs> right. It's ridiculous. Related to kind of an adult industry. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And as far as far as this claustrophobia attack yeah. that he would get, I just think. To me, I haven't seen Vertigo. I it's probably closer to bring it up again. It's probably closer to the drinking problem that he has an airplane <laughs> than than that's no, awesome. than a Vertigo thing as far as what comes up in a film. A connection I can safely say probably no one has made in the history of the human race uh, connecting body double to flying to Rio. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Not flying, through, to, not flying to Rio. Airplane. Oh, but through oh, through yes. airplane. <laughs> airplane is the uh, is the degree yes. between the, the conduit. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I'm taking over the review already. I cut you off where you're going anyway. No. Now. No. If anything, I want to go with what you're saying. Um. This is where when we covered body. Uh, dress to kill. Dress to kill. Thank you. <laughs> this is where we covered dress to kill and. Uh, in the initial positioning of why we're going a stage past Scarface, mm-hmm. Bonnie Double is referred to as like his best work, even it, among it, Scarface. It, and I was like, what? No, nah, like, there's no way. Yeah. And the guy did Untouchables. We did a couple stuff in the past, pr- pr- yeah. like even last year, the first yeah. year of the podcast as well, with him. I did, did this movie... It is so much dressed to kill. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, like one-to-one... Type right. stuff. Not exactly the same scene, but it's like, oh, we're doing the exact same thing. We're doing actually. it again. Yeah, um, maybe a little bit bigger budget. You know, constantly, yeah. and it's not even that big of a budget. It to me felt like a. We're it's the same formula. Mm. We are in a single town, oftentimes in the same exact rooms. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, it, it's just crazy that we went from Scarface back to this. Yeah, that's true. I know. I know. And, and that's where I say, you know, three years does Untouchables. I mean, Oscar nominated and whatnot. Yeah. So he's not he's not um, confined just to these movies. But I feel like uh, in all my research, it was pointing towards this four year stretch and uh, just very, very disappointing uh, with it. Uh, but like you said, Tom, later on in the year, we will be getting around to some of those cut classics like what this is being compared to with Hitchcock. Uh, but I need to stress that De Palma's ultra violence and vulgarity, especially, makes this feel closer to an average slasher already played out by 1984, already done mm-hmm, to death. Yeah. Uh, especially uh, post uh, Friday the Thirteenth, and you know the the, the early waves yeah. of mid seventies slashers. And I wouldn't, I didn't find this ultra gory or ultra no. blood splatter type stuff, or an old splatter film as we right, right, yeah. that's kind of what they used to be called. Yeah, we, I think it's just ahead, more yeah. so uh, the 
not not in a prudish way, but like the exploitation of sexuality, the vulgarity. Right. Okay. Of it. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, he's not afraid to show some blood when it does matter. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, one aspect I, I actually kind of enjoy here uh, was the music done by Pino Donaggio, um, being a shared composer on Dress to Kill. It is an equal mix of very deliberate Hitchcock-style strings for tension, uh, while still having that emerging 80s synth that, alongside directors, composers like John Carpenter, really starts to take shape middle of the decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really start to get um, what the 80s is remembered for in these type of moments. Uh, the movie also features a the massively popular song, Relax, by the real band uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood in the movie. Though, if I'm being honest, it just kind of made me want to go watch Zoolander. So, <laughs> <laughs> Gotta say, though, Tom, um, I'm sure glad this De Palma study is over. <laughs> I'm, I'm, done with, I'm done with it. Not that anyone's really digging up the, the issue of who is in this category of new wave 70s directors. I think De Palma is, is low on the list despite having some iconic uh, works like Scarface. I think my initial curiosity is ultimately what I'm walking away with, uh, scratching my head at what anyone, uh, why anyone uh, would put him alongside Scorsese and Spielberg. For this movie's case, I feel like it really does land smack dab middle of the road, uh, equally having the frustrating plot and acting performances, but also... Having a decent bite that uh, is is from the alleged master of suspense. We're going to go ahead and give Body Double 1984 a 52. A 52%. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. I would <laughs> completely agree. I'm not no. going to. No, no, no. Okay. That's yeah. right where you belong. I'm not going to <laughs> give a two shoes. Okay. It's so unshocking at this point. When you watch it and just like mm. the sexuality of it, yep. the sexiness of it, even it's the turns. It's almost overkill. Right, the, the 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 stalking aspect, the the creeping scenes, kind mm-hmm, of. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, this is the Palma, yeah. you know, been here, seen it before. Right, and none maybe- of it is shocking. <laughs> And all of the only shocking part is that to me it doesn't feel like it. Like I said, it doesn't feel like a big film, right? And it feels like a guy who's just starting out. This mm. seems like a second film for a big time director, sure. And it's not. Right. This is after Scarface, and I get this a year after year after year. Mm. Huge mm-hmm. accomplishment. Yeah. Huge yep. accomplishment. Right. That being said, nothing is new, and it's highly unimpressive. Right. It really is like you need to watch it's not a good film. It's not even like enjoyable <laughs> to watch. Again, I, 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 I'm with you on the enjoyment aspect because uh, again, I, I, I think the the main character lost me entirely. Also, yeah. uh, uh, I, I guess maybe out of curiosity, this uh, stars a very young Melanie Griffith. I think that's her name. Okay, Dakota Johnson's uh, mother uh, connected to Madame Web. Oh, really? <laughs> That's hilarious, and she plays Holly, kind of the main. Yes, yes. Uh, well, the, the the body double. Yes, uh, that's that's the porn actress. Not he as finds. annoying as Nancy Allen. Oh, but, definitely not. But I, close, uh, right? But, but a little bit close. But in fact, I, our main Craig Lawson <laughs> playing Jason is it's, yeah. it's pretty. Uh, it's actually pretty kind of annoying. Yeah, and whiny, yeah. he's like a whinier Bill Maher. Oh, yeah, he looks yes. he looks like Bill Maher. I was gonna say, um, uh, why can't I think of his name? The dude, uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I was gonna say discount bin Jeff Bridges. No, oh, not even not a chance. <laughs> I can his voice maybe a little bit actually. Right. He does kind of have this like uh, I don't know like goopier back of his <laughs> kind of throat. That's a great description. <laughs> goopier, I love it. But uh, uh, I, I didn't like th- I didn't like this film. I didn't hate it. Okay, um, it's just like oh. Here we are with our good friend De Palma again. Mm, I know. It's just like, oh, you would do that. You mm. would make this film. 
It's just like, here we are in one of his sexual fantasies in the back of his head. I know. I think he just doesn't know how to write, like, uh, not that many people do, but write like a prostitute character. I think my issue with Nancy Allen in the first two films, yeah. uh, and then my issues here is that I, maybe he just doesn't know how to write females, or I don't know. I think maybe but. the issue is he's just he's continuing to write prostitute characters, <laughs> and it's just like, just do something different. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I, it really points to Scarface thinking that Oliver Stone mm. is doing the real work there. Yes, uh, yes. He's the one who wrote the, the, the screenplay. Yeah. And I can't imagine how much he set up of why that mm. movie is sure. as big and as well kind of just thought out it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Again, uh, on top of the shoulders that's on with uh, OG Scarface, uh, but 100% agree. Maybe yeah. the takeaway with this study is that De Palma, good on the lens, not on the pen. Yeah, uh, and I don't I mean? think it's that great on the lens either, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My favorite, in fact, I, I think we've come to the point where my favorite uh, Dennis France is the okay. actor who was in these three films. <laughs> oh, yeah. But Dennis, Dennis France, who played the dirty cop, yep, yep. kind of the good cop, but also bad cop yep. in Dress to Kill, you said he just played a flat out bad guy in Blowout. Yep, and now yep. he played the director in this. I just love <laughs> his acting. Right, right. It, it, it's, I'm a fan of this guy now. So I'm excited to see him in the film. He's the Palma's Leo, right. basically. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, Okay, I think that's enough for that. 52 for Body Double it makes perfect sense. So if you want to see all the De Palma stuff, make sure to check out the website then because mm. we do have a decent selection of him at this absolutely, point Absolutely, absolutely. It was uh, good to good to kind of, you know, get that done because I don't want to <laughs> didn't want to have that, you know, right, he right. comes out with, you know, I, I didn't want to ever return to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll hit him up some in the future yeah. a little bit. He does do some big pictures here there. Yeah, he yeah. weaves in and out. Anyway, we're going to jump to 2002 now. Yep. Uh, I didn't watch this film. Oh, really? I, lo- oh. I, I love the idea behind it. Right, I, I, I thought like this be, was going to work for you. It seems really up my alley, yep. um, I have to say. It's Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, and this is directed by George Clooney. His first mm. film he directed? Yes, very first. All right, d- directorial debut then for Co- Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, starring our boy in Argyle last week. Mm. Um, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Yep. So we both like Sam Rockwell. I have to say something that was turning me off a little bit. I'm not the biggest Drew Barrymore fan. Oh, I can't stand Drew Barrymore. You, 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 you're taking all my notes. <laughs> <laughs> like every line. <laughs> the best, in fact, the best part of, of one of the commercials for the Super Bowl ads oh, yeah? was the Paramount Plus one, uh-huh. which they came out a week before I sent it to sure, you. Sure. But it was Patrick Stewart telling Drew Barrymore to like shut her face. <laughs> Shut your face, Barrymore, or something like that. Very enjoyable. Very enjoyable. Regardless, Very con- Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I love the loose kind of connective tissue with Orion in the dark. Yes. So it's kind of cool that we're covering it this week. But set the film up a little bit. Tell us about it, and how'd you like it? Uh, well, I-, I really did enjoy this film. I enjoyed it on, on a lot of different levels. Uh, this was enjoyable to tackle this week, be- both because I never saw it, and it fits perfectly into our new animated release. Uh, my brother-in-law, John, and I have been tackling these Charlie Kaufman scripts. Um, uh, over the last year or so, the two of them this week being much easier than we were what we're used to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these were not really like mind-twisting type of scripts that he's known for. Uh, like we said already, directorial debut for George Clooney uh, coming out in 2002. It also acts as a fun reunion for a lot of Ocean's Eleven talent mm. here uh, with a handful of guest spots, and that's primarily where I was like, you know, the top's got this like movie this. is for me. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, it's like this is the sweet spot, you know? <laughs> and maybe more than anything, folks, it is a bit of a redemption slot for our boy Sam Rockwell after last week's blunder with Argyle. And honestly, to see, for my own curiosity, how a spy action comedy might be done right. Um, my takeaway with that last piece is that this kind of separates it when it's a spy action movie it's a spy action movie when it's a comedy it's a comedy so Mm, not a great blending but definitely a redemption for rockwell because i really did enjoy this performance quite a bit i want to start with the summary right away uh because the subject of the story might be just the most interesting part confessions of a dangerous mind is the closest thing we might get to a biopic for tv host and producer chuck barris Uh, If that name doesn't sound familiar, he was the creator of many hit TV shows in kind of the golden age of television. Yeah, real life guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, many hit TV shows like The Newlywed Game, The Dating Game, and even hosted and created The Gong Show. uh, All formats in TV that are still, you know, iterated upon uh, still today. Sam Rockwell certainly embodies Chuck's uh, party attitude and uh, even comes pretty close to looking like him, but the story goes much further than just a simple game show. The title of this movie comes directly from Chuck's autobiography in which he reveals the communist-obsessed CIA of the 60s trained and recruited him as a spy. The real dude. So... What this movie proposes is that Chuck Barris, a TV game show host, was a spy on the side. (laughs) And that was just like, what? Like, (laughs) is this true? Is this movie playing into a joke? It's Charlie Kaufman. Is he playing a joke on us? Right. You know? <laughs> well, the real guy, like you said, is based on an autobiography. Right. The real Chuck Barris said it's absolutely true. Oh, sure. Now there's a sure lot of <laughs> sure, there's know. a lot of people that say it's bullshit. All right, including the CIA. Right. Uh, which yeah, is but that's what they would say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And thus, why this movie was so enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, this was one hell of a rabbit hole for research, and I, uh, I think the consensus of this, uh, you know. Is it is it true or is it false? Falls into one of three camps. Um, uh, Chuck is absolutely full of shit, uh, and he made <laughs> it all up. <laughs> um, and most notably, the CIA is the one saying that. Secondly, some of it happened, confirmed by his peers in the TV industry, and citing long absences in Chuck's career. Uh, And third, all of it is true, which is by far the most interesting angle for at least making this into a story, making this into a movie, and the route that the film takes. The real artistry here is taking this story and layering it into the psychology of the character. Chuck has this obsession with self-worth, posing these spy stories as possible delusions or possible truth is what the movie is all about. And I really just found it such a uh, an enjoyable kind of mystery to untangle, even though the okay. film doesn't really commit to a side. So we're not even, and that's the real story of the film. So we're yes. not following this guy in this going from TV to producer, living a CIA life. It's more so unraveling, is this guy for real or not? Uh, yes. Uh, now, the actual moments of the film, I would say it's 50-50. It's a little bit of a TV show nostalgia. TV production nostalgia, which I'll get into in just a second, and real spy action. And that's where I mean, like, the spy action comedy juggling act. It's pretty separate. You know, when we're on the TV side, it's all fun and games. Spy side, it's it's a really, it is like an espionage action, so... 
Uh, folks, as a result of this, I felt that this was a perfect fit for Kaufman's unique approach to storytelling. Uh, and while it may be tame in comparison to, uh, once again, the mind-bending films we've covered uh, from him in the past, uh, it still has his fingerprint as something clearly he was passionate enough about to put his name on, uh, and early in his career as well, uh, no less George Clooney. Uh, what I really enjoyed the most, though, was that TV production aspect here. I felt the, the TV history side of the story was more interesting than the spy story, no less the entire time saying, no, no way, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and, and then not really getting confirmation after research either. Um, this worked in the, in the same way that, um, like, being the Ricardos works, or even like a Mad Men where the cogs behind the scene mm -hmm. are interesting to unpack. And that's where I would actually recommend this movie most um, for if you have an interested interest in these kind of golden age TV productions. Yeah, he captures it pretty well. Exactly. Clooney, okay. Uh, Clooney, as a Nepo baby, you know, references his mom, references, you know, the NBC tours that were part of the culture at the time. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot there. Acting-wise, I already mentioned Sam Rockwell's a nice fit. I... I felt a little bit of a disadvantage to call heads or tails if he's doing a good job because I've never seen The Gong Show. I've never seen Chuck Harris yeah. besides some nice videos online. You know. That's where I kind of like Sam Rockwell. Mm. Like, I haven't seen this. I don't, I don't know the original guy, Chuck Barris, or anything like that, what he mm -hmm. looks like, how he sounds. But he's very good. It, it's tough that when, if, when you're watching him act – it's tough not to see Sam Rockwell. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, think about. Because he's been him for the whole career. You know, he's, he is Sam Rockwell. Right, exactly. So when, when he's in, you know, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, mm. he's just Sam Rockwell playing a dumb cop. <laughs> but yeah. he's great, and you love to see him <laughs> yeah. in a role. Yeah. When you see him in Moon, it's like, oh, it's Sam Rockwell stuck in. I don't it's see like him as thriller, the character yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And most of all, when you watch him in Vice. Mm hmm. He's great at George W. Bush, mm. but not because he's doing a great George W. Bush impression. <laughs> right. It's more so he is doing – I forget the word. There's actual te technical term. We're not mm. trying to do a full-on impersonation, mm. but you're really just trying to do almost a representation. Sure. And Sam Rockwell's George Bush, it's funny because it's not good. Right, it's not right. Josh Brolin yeah, uh, yeah. who does a phenomenal Bush. Mm. But in his own way, he makes it, it great. And that's right. why I like Sam Rockwell, because mm -hmm. he can be weird. Yeah. And he's very much himself for his own acting style or mm -hmm. just him. I see him, not so much the character, but it works. And I think a and key piece is, is understanding that he's mostly in comedic roles for these things, you know, as much as Vice. That's you know, a good point. I don't know, flirts the line with not being comedic. Yeah, you know? it's yeah. comedic. But, it, but yeah, it, I, I think he's always, that, that's a great point about it's not trying to go for laser perfect He's trying to go for an approximation or what we remember them to be. Right, right. He's not going for a complete body double of the of the original guy. <laughs> nice, nice. But uh, we're, so we're I can, stringing them along right. this week. They're all connected. But but I can see whether he's just like the original guy or not. I yeah. can see how much of it. It's still fun to watch him personify mm -hmm. this guy. Yeah. You know, it's, it, we're not. We don't need always a Johnny Depp fear and loathing in Las Vegas mm, yep. going as Hunter as Thompson. Sure, you know? sure. That's a great. That's a great callback too. Uh, and and for what it's worth, like Barris was like a party animal. He was almost like a Dean Martin type, uh, mm. especially in his persona on screen. Right. Um, okay. The Gong Show was basically America's Got Talent or X Factor. In that it's like a you know usually celebrities or a panel and and it's a talent show and yeah they got cut short. I feel like Rockwell's just able to get up on there and have a fun time and that's basically what Barris was doing. Right you now, what was surprising I was waiting for kind of like uh, some sort of alcohol thread or 
uh, substance abuse thread, and it never really comes. And maybe you know, <laughs> just because Bears didn't put it in the autobiography, he wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to say he was being a spy. I would say, despite my deep hatred of Drew Barrymore, <laughs> she really isn't bad here, and I feel like she really fits in the role well. And uh, George Clooney is pulling double time directing, but um, his acting, I feel like, uh, takes the cake, uh, wins out. Uh, Clooney? Yeah, yeah. He plays the CIA agent uh, that gets him into it, and he's just he's just cool as ice. He's rocking this mustache. Okay, you know, all right, that's good like to hear. salt and pepper look. Because you you're know? not the biggest Clooney guy. I'm well, really not. I, but... Yeah, but I feel like this worked, again, in this, this small bubble of, like, 2001 to 2003, maybe, that it's just, I don't know. So I, he's Danny Ocean as a spy, exactly. which I'm more than okay with. <laughs> yeah, bingo, bingo. <laughs> so uh, that, that's where it was, it was very enjoyable. Uh, what I'm going to end with, though, is Clooney's directing I'm not so sure about, uh, especially because this is a little bit of an anomaly in the type of projects he takes on later on yeah. as well. He's using a lot of heavy filters here. Um, I mean, I, I cannot like stress that enough. This this had me worried. My my TV went broke. You know, what I mean, is I mean, that weird or it, that off? They, I mean, constant and heavy. There are constant changes. Uh, like and, from blues to golds and reds, or uh, like... to blinding flashes, like weird oh, okay. choices in the you. color okay. palette. Gotcha. Um, you know, each time period basically gets its own color palette. I mean, we're we're ranging a huge amount of uh, decades here, but uh, the worst being present day interviews with other TV talents, which mm-hmm. arguably I was you know really starving for to get some sort of confirmation. And it just looked like a like a nuke was going off behind them. It was like this really? blinding, like I had to avert my eyes from the TV. Uh, truly insane. To me, it feels very student film. Uh, very, mm, very early okay. filmmaker, just kind of throwing everything. Uh, not to not to sling some dirt, but an emerald fennel type. Ah, uh, okay. Where okay, there's yeah. just a lot being thrown on screen, and certainly. Each individual piece can be seen as stylish and, and well-executed, but altogether it's kind of a little messy. Yeah, okay. Uh, a little amateurish. On a positive note, I would say some filmmaking reminded me a lot of Wes Anderson in a good way. Um, comedy will be elevated by swings of the camera or symmetry on screen, but once again, looking at the rest of his director projects, I was kind of wondering where those Wes Anderson styles went because, uh, you know, I'm sure the tender bar doesn't feel like <laughs> I like the tender bar. I, listen, I've never seen it. I actually watched it. Yeah, no, not bad. Ben Affleck doesn't okay. Was that directed by George Clooney? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I thought it was Ben Affleck again. Yeah, he does Um, he does a lot, you know, more than you'd think. I think it's wow, uh, 11 or 12 projects. Are you sure he did the tender bar? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and What's-His-Face was good in it as well. I, I ben actually, Affleck? Yeah, Ben Affleck was good in it. I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> But either way, I, I, I thought this was a very solid movie with um, plenty of unpacking as a conversation piece once the credits roll. Uh, I enjoy movies like this, yeah. that the conversation goes beyond it and, you know, in, in part uh, helps as a proof of concept for why we talk about movies on the podcast, these type of movies that we can unpack. Um, and happily uh, redeem the concept of a spy action comedy after coming off of uh, Argyle uh, and the the crash and burn that that was. But uh, give it a watch. Uh, we're going to go ahead and give Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, 2002, a 71. Okay, 71. Yeah, pretty good movie. Yeah. 
Excellent. I think it's right up my alley. I got to check it out. Uh, yeah. You specifically as well. I, I just Because, again, the sweet spot of, of oceans. and It's right there. Steven Soderbergh, uh, executive producer as No well. way. Yeah, he's oh, EP on the project. Man. That's great. That's great. And I love that we're going through. We didn't hit Charlie Kaufman for a while on the podcast. Yes. And the first one we covered, when you kind of did a, a little bit mm-hmm. of a study, you had said how kind of nervous you were to approach him yeah, with yeah. the prowess and how well he's received or regarded mm-hmm. uh, by and high, how by, highbrow it is sometimes. Yes, yeah. a, a big time. Yeah. So it's funny how far we've come where it's just like, oh, okay, great. We're doing yeah. another coffin film. Right, here. right. Yeah. And sometimes he is very easy to digest yeah. a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is pr- a pretty easy film to watch, is Absolutely. what it seems like. Absolutely. Um, and it ties in very much with our next film, too. Talk mm-hmm. about an easy watch. Yeah. But I love that Kaufman really. Has we're getting a full circle with him mm-hmm. uh, because it's not just this ultra neurotic, confusing guy. Mm. Uh, he can kind of write for the every guy as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even fun scripts or something interesting, y- exa- and still have a fingerprint with it. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so we'll get into that film for a second, folks. Uh, before we get to those new releases, we want to remind everybody that the daily ratings here we are entirely producer supported. Uh, we're not going to hit you with advertising on the podcast or the website. We want a clean experience. We don't want to just shill products. We don't care about, and just try to get our you know try to get our subscriber downloads up that mm-hmm. we can go pitch our downloads to an advertising company mm-hmm. and that we get money. It's a it's a bit of a mess. It's not very honest as well. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, we don't want to do any paywalls to this site where you need to pay to get uh, have access to content, and we don't want any tier structures. You know, you give five bucks and you get a Q and A. You give fifty bucks and you get a T shirt and a Q and A and something else. It's um, everybody's dollar uh, means something different to them. Five bucks this week could be a lot to somebody, and it could be basically nothing to somebody else. And that's why we call it the value for value model. The idea is is that Vin and I are doing the podcast every week. We have the companion piece, which is the website, uh, which is building every week. It's it's an awesome product. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's our own kind of IMDb, our own Rotten Tomatoes. So we put these things out there, and the idea is, is it value to you? You know, are you enjoying it? Are you using it? Are you just stopping by every week on the podcast having a good time? Do you check in every month or so just because there's one film particularly that we're hitting that you have interest in? Um, Like I always say, it's value in your pocket. We ask you, can you give us value back in our pocket? It is the value for value model. So you go to the donations tab on the dailyratings.com. And through your monetary support, you become a legit producer of the daily ratings. Uh, you show us what value you're getting, whether it be just a fun amount, whether it's $4, $40, or 400 bucks. It could be whatever you want. We have some set donations, too, like buy Vin a movie ticket. If you want to become a godfather, donate 95 bucks. Uh, kind of fun stuff that's related mm-hmm. to the podcast. But really, if you just want to donate whatever amount that you want, whatever value you're getting, you can do that as well. It can be a one-time. It can be a monthly. It could be a yearly donation. You can set it up that way as well. Uh, just like in Hollywood, when you financially support a product or a, or a project, you become a producer of that thing. So that's why it's a legit producer credit in your name. Uh, you will be mentioned in the show notes of the episode, and we appreciate those who have produced in the past, and we hope so many of you will in the future as we kind of grow a little bit, get the name out there, and also kind of get the whole value for vo- value for value model out there as well. 
Don't forget, when you donate, you send in a producer note, whether that be at tom.vin at thedailyratings.com. That's our email. Or whether when you send through PayPal, you can go ahead and write a little note in there. The idea is when you donate, you send us money, uh, you take the time to write a note as well, and we're going to address it here right now. That could be questions, comments, critiques. That could be as ask us anything. Yeah, you got us hostage. If you, <laughs> you got us hostage. We're, you know, that, that's the key. You, you can write into us anytime. But when yeah. it comes to actually donating in, we're going to read it on air. So, uh. <laughs> And if you want to be anonymous, be anonymous. If you don't want to attach your name to it, all you have to do is sure, uh, write sure. that in as well. And yeah. we won't uh, we won't say your name. We'll keep you anonymous. So that's kind of how we're setting up to do things. We are growing. And slowly, hopefully, people can kind of get the idea where you listen to all these podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and the amount of ads are getting absurd. Mm. I was just we- feeling that as well. Um, there's a small news show I, I watch. There was four ad breaks in it, like a fifteen-minute video. It's just like I got no problem with them making money. Sure. I want to support creators, but uh, it, ru- point, it it yeah it it ruins the product it more and more. The, you know the experience. It's you know? it's shocking how yeah. much it takes you away from it, yeah. pulls you away, and some people just do it. The way people go about mm. doing ads is really just like distasteful as yes, well. Yes, yes. I mean, it's getting really bad, and I think because advertising is really drying up for podcasts mm. a bit, mm-hmm. so. I think people are doing more because they're getting per ad, they're making less. Mm, uh, true, there's some podcasts true. I listen to, and I swear it's twice as many as what they were doing yeah. last year, and it it ruins the product so much. Yeah, yeah. And it cheapens it, and it cheapens how you view the other person as sure, well a little sure. bit, you know. So that's why we're doing it this way. Um, it is certainly not a get rich quick scheme. Um, <laughs> you know, hopefully, like I said, we are growing slow, and hopefully, this idea gets out there a little bit more. We're not expecting one every week. Yeah. Uh, certainly, as we're as we're starting to build a little bit. And uh, like I said, we appreciate all of you producers who have produced in the past, and uh, and we hope many of you will in the future. Again, it's thedailyratings.com. Head to the Donations tab, and don't forget to send that donation note in. All right, Vin, let's keep things going with our two newly released films. We're going to start with kind of the kid, the Netflix release, mm. before we go to the theatrical release. But sure. this ties in to our last film. The film is called Orion and the Dark. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's on Netflix. It's an animated kids' film. Directed by Sean Charmatz, who have, we definitely have not dealt with before. No, no, yeah. Uh, but most importantly, it is direct. It is written by Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> Kids movie. Yeah. When I was going through the 2024 films, I could not believe. Like <laughs> double take. I said, "Is there another guy named Charlie Kaufman?" Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is the real guy. The guy who did <laughs> being John Malkovich. The guy who did adaptation. Yep, yep. Uh, he's here doing this kids film. So set up Orion in the dark a little bit for us, Finn. I did watch this one. Oh, okay. Um, and let's talk about how we liked it. Sure, sure. So, um, uh, so this is really the feature debut for director uh, Sean Charmetz, uh, who has had a long history in animation before taking this director role, uh, Okay, uh, from working on Spongebob to most recently being on other DreamWorks projects. This is a DreamWorks animation. DreamWorks being back again, they are coming off of two dead arrivals uh, as projects from last year, that being both Rudy Gilman and Trolls 3, that I'm sure did fine financially. Did okay, yeah. Yeah, but kind of dead on arrival as far as reception outside of the intended kids right. market. So uh, I'm just going to step in for one sure, second. Sure. Just because I did somewhat research when I found mm-hmm. out about the film, uh, and we talked about it on the uh, the Tom Daly episode. Yep. So DreamWorks picked it up as far as the American kind of production company. Mm-hmm. The real animation here is done by a studio called Micros Animation. Mm. They're a French company. Interesting. So Micros did basically all the animation also for Ninja Turtle movie that just came out. Oh, the Mutant okay. Mayhem yeah. last summer. 
And then they also do some modern-day SpongeBob stuff, which wow. I think is where this Sean Charmettes comes from. Sure. When I say the new SpongeBob stuff, I don't. It's that new. Have you seen any of the new SpongeBob so. animation style? No, it's no. Ugly. Oh, really? It looks fake, cheap, and like the animation's terrible. Interesting, interesting. But they seems like they hit it out of the park at least for Mutant Mayhem. Mm, yeah. Uh, for the Ninja Turtle thing, and this is a step up as well. Mm. So, DreamWorks fingerprints are on this. For sure, but mm-hmm. really the hard work, the animation stuff, um, and style is coming from this little French company. Mm, that's great research and yeah. uh, definitely understandable uh, as far as DreamWorks, you know, still having a huge production pipeline outside of you know these like Netflix deals yeah. that they have. Twenty twenty three was disappointing for DreamWorks, but um, despite that, they they were coming off a very strong year in twenty twenty two, being the wonderfully animated projects of the Bad Guys yeah. and Puss in Boots: Last Wish. As we always say, piss and boots. <laughs> <laughs> like we mentioned, uh, this was uh, written by Charlie Kaufman uh, and being another notch in the belt of tackling his projects that often intimidate me, but I'm finding I'm liking more and more. Uh, I, I, I guess if I had to call out the one that intimidates me, the one that started the the fear. Okay. Uh, in, in the theme of this movie being, you know, fears and, and fear of the dark. <laughs> <laughs> it was Schenectady, New York with um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right, okay. Uh, and, and I just remember really not liking that movie. <laughs> and that, that, <laughs> and that movie fine. is very highly praised. Uh, being John Malkovich, I've, I think it's on this site, mm, you didn't give it a too high of a rating. Yeah, that one as well. And that's and, iconic, but I was just like, man. I don't think know? I told you, but in my kind of attempt last year to start watching some older stuff, sure. you know, away from the podcast and just kind of, sure. uh, I did watch Being John Malkovich. Okay. Same feeling. Really? Really didn't love it all that much. Interesting. Maybe, well, Not maybe, the biggest fan. Maybe we can tackle that head on then because I, I think if you're you're with me on the right. same page yeah. then. You know? Good. And you didn't give it like in the 40s or anything. Right. I think it was right. like in the 60s. Sure. Um, but it wasn't the immense praise. That, uh, correct. Uh, that, correct. That both of those movies connected to and being John Malcolm. But it is great that we're fleshing him out a little bit. Yes. He's getting more, I don't know, we get more comfortable with him, but he's yeah. a more personable guy than maybe <laughs> this highbrow intellectual that's right. tough to get a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. And uh, I would say, luckily, this is just a kid's movie. Yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> but, much so. But uh, I, I really was surprised how Kaufman was still able to insert his meta style into this. Uh, in fact, uh, the last act of this movie gets pretty insane uh, and par for the course for our writer. Orion in the Dark is the latest Netflix animated feature with a big in soundtrack featuring bands like Tame Impala and Flaming Lips. Uh, we follow Orion, who is a panicking hypochondriac of sorts, uh, and basically what I imagine Kaufman's real childhood to be like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he has to get out of his own head to face his fears, uh, the biggest of all being the fear of darkness. Uh, the entity of Dark, a chunky spirit that controls darkness, comes to help him overcome this as he is sick of everyone being scared of him all the time. Uh, and all of this is pretty straightforward until the movie pulls a Princess Bride of sorts and shows that it is actually a story being told by present-day Orion telling a nighttime story to his daughter. That's where this Kaufman spin. Yeah. I at first I was watching this movie and I was like, this is almost unusually straightforward. <laughs> you know, this is almost unusually palatable. <laughs> but uh, it was that little spin, and uh, I honestly don't know if Kaufman has a daughter or is going through like a uh, you know his, his uh, being a father. Yeah. Uh, this felt very in line, like a writer now becoming a father is now evolving in what he's writing about. I, I couldn't help but get away from my mind, like. Almost, you know, within five minutes of the film, 
it really reminds me of a kid's version of adaptation. Oh, really? <laughs> and because this kid is so scared by everything, it really <laughs> reminded me of the way uh, Nick Cage portrayed Charlie, Charlie Kaufman <laughs> yeah. in adaptation. Uh, the kid's a little bit neurotic. He's yeah. freaked out by everything. Yeah. He's overly, like, he's very intelligent, mm -hmm. but doesn't always know how to, like, harness that intelligence sure. a little bit. And he runs a little bit wild. Yep. And then when you have this switching back and forth, this mm -hmm. mixing of realities or times a little bit. Yep. I really liked it. I yeah. mean, it, it did. It had this essence of Kaufman. And he made a comment before of, you know, he does a lot of different things, but mm -hmm. the, he does put a, a stamp on there. Where yeah. There's something that's different, something that's his that you can always spot a little sure. bit. Sure, sure. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I think my enjoyment of this film was toned a little bit back just for... I don't know, uh, for a little bit of the visual style, believe it or not, and despite, you know, liking some of the other works of this kind of outsourced animated yeah. studio. Uh, one thing so far really we liked. Uh, yeah, true, true. Granted, we didn't uh, give Paul, Paul Patrols much, much of a <laughs> did shot, they do Paul but they do a lot of Paul Patrol oh, stuff. Uh, <laughs> have we explained the Paul Patrol meme? Uh, no. Between the two of them, not really a meme. You know? <laughs> um, but, but I would say the animation wasn't um, anything amazing. Yeah. It wasn't outwardly bad. Mm. How would you compare this with Wish? Oh, ooh. Ooh. Uh, interesting enough. Both try some uh, weird texturing uh, to the CG models uh, mm -hmm. uh, for fabrics and and hair, uh, and specifically on Orion. But uh, both kind of being a little meh in that way. Yeah. So I okay. think that's a good comparison. Okay. You know, throughout the story here, we embark to meet many other spirit characters that control aspect of the nights, uh, such as sweet dreams, insomnia, or my absolute favorite, unexplained noises, yeah. which I, I really, really loved. Um, these other spirits, I think, were the best part by far. Almost like, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but an all real monsters from the 90s or kind of a messed up version of the emotions in Pixar's Inside Out. Yeah. Uh, personifications of these. Um, I think it, this is where the comedy writing really worked for me. These characters, it, it dances the line of semi-messed up. Uh, and really got some laughs out of me, especially just just unexplained noises. So just like it's, it's good. It's it sound, it, it was such a, a writer thing to make out of a character. Like you know, what I mean, it's not no one's no one's <laughs> thinking of the spirit of unexplained noises in the dark. You know, but it was really great. I would say this being another animated feature of Netflix and, and what they have funded, I found myself thinking of the exact same critique I had with. 2022's The Sea Beast, despite really enjoying that mm. film, uh, there's just something slightly off about the voice matching to these characters. Uh, and, and this is, once again, kind of what took me a little bit away from the, the aesthetics of the project. The voice acting, the look of the film. Uh, this is mainly pointed at Richard Jewell, I mean, uh, Paul Walter Hauser. You know, not a single what? point... <laughs> I don't think I get it. I don't, think I don't get the joke. It doesn't land over here. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul Walter Hauser played Richard Jewell. Oh, in Richard Jewell. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not that anyone watched Richard I, Jewell. I, I, <laughs> or any of Clint Eastwood's movies anymore. <laughs> uh, rated on the site. Yeah, rated on the site. Rated on the so, site. But yeah, the main guy who plays Dark here. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking Bargain Bin. Mm. Or discount bin, but more likable, better Seth Rogen. Oh, 100%. Oh, okay, okay. 100%. Exactly. I mean, we are on the same page. It's 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 discount Seth Rogen. It feels like a character that Seth Rogen would yes. play. I, but I like this guy better. Really? I'm not, I'm not the biggest Seth 
Seth Rogen. Sure. Okay, fair, fair. Yeah, and I the can't. shtick that has become Seth Rogen. Right, it's the like laugh and whatnot. Yeah, we've yeah. been there, done that now for yeah. twenty five years. Yeah, I mean, you know, at least for Hauser, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, it's not that it was a terrible. It, it wasn't that it was a character that he couldn't play. I just felt like he maybe just didn't have the chops as far as voice acting specifically. Yeah, it is a whole different realm. Yeah. Yeah, a whole um, different medium, voice was, acting. He didn't feel, I don't know, um, as animated as I wanted it to be. Verbose enough. Sure, sure. And that, again, uh, it just reminded me of the same exact feeling with Sea Beast with uh, your boy. Wow. <laughs> and I was just like, it's just not doing it for me. Wow, uh, really you know? taking shots where you don't have to, I feel like. Yeah, so Sea Beast, your main things were, you love I think Sea Beast got like an 80 or an 82. Uh, well, 82 might be a little high. No, I think it was high 70s. Uh, maybe 79 or something. Yeah, yeah. The voice lip syncing thing is interesting, mm. and then Carl, Ur- my boy, Carl Urban, um, in CBs because <laughs> wow, it's unnecessary shots. <laughs> now, Paul Walter Hauser, it, it's I don't think people really know. Like, I wouldn't know the name. I don't even know. I can't put a face to the uh, name. Sure, you sure. know what I mean? Yeah. So that's good that even that you have the Richard Jewell reference. Yeah. Uh, film that no one's really cares about. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I, I agree. Where there was something a little bit. This film overall lacked something. Yeah. And maybe that's why it's like okay, this belongs on Netflix. Mm. But I still don't think it was hitting in enough. Way Ways or punched enough as a sea beast did, mm, yeah. as far as visuals or overall overall story. Yeah, you know because sea beast also had fun action. You know, right? Like, it was really a pirate action, action film where yeah. this the whole point of the film really takes place at night, mm. involving around a small crew. Yeah, you know, a small cast. Exactly. So you hit it on it exactly. With the characters are very reminiscent of Elemental, mm. right? Is that what uh, no, 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 uh, no. Uh, Inside Out. Yes. Yeah. So it was cute in that way, and you could really, that's where the most fun was. The mm-hmm. movie moved the most is when you had the most personalities on screen. Yeah. So, yeah. But definitely, overall, a smaller contained film, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And maybe doomed to be that, well, it's Netflix fodder. I mean, not, not knocking yeah. this film as far as quality in that way, but... I know, I was hoping it was a bit more. Yeah. With, I mean, if Charlie Kaufman is attached, to sure. it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and despite the outsourcing of animation, you know, DreamWorks is a huge name, you know? It's number two, arguably. Yeah. So. I will say, I mean, I will say, it almost, give it a theatrical release, this is better than a lot of what we've gotten lately. Hmm, that's a fair point. Look at Pixar. I mean, it's better sure, than Lightyear. Better than Elemental. Better than Strange Worlds. Oh my god, better than Lightyear. Oh, I mean, man. like, it's it's way better. <laughs> I think I will always remember the deafening silence from a, a theater packed with children <laughs> at Lightyear. I mean, it was really eye-opening. <laughs> uh, but in this, in this unbelievable, just tidal wave of animated films that we're getting, mm. because there's so many different studios, mm. uh, this is right in the middle of the pact. Yeah. If not yeah. a little bit better. Right. The problem is it's still, it's, yeah. Exactly. There's there's just some lacking elements to it, and and, and hopefully you know uh, we can kind of point to that for the enjoyment. I, I I think for a kids movie it was fine. You know I wasn't thrilled with the art style, and somehow in in ways it's both too simple and too complex at times. If, if absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah, like and in ways it's very simple. You know more simple than like an Inside Out, but then also it's way too complex, like a you know like a Kaufman script. So. Um, you know, I think this concept of personifying elements wasn't a fresh enough uh, idea for me. And uh, even with the meta story 
every aspect stepping into play. Uh, for Netflix watch, I think this was perfectly acceptable. Um, worth an afternoon watching with your family. I just wouldn't expect this to land up there with the excellent animated projects we've been seeing uh, as of late, uh, at least at least the, the, the standout ones. Yeah. Uh, with that said, we're going to go ahead and give Orion and the Dark a 62. Okay, 62. Yeah, I think I agree with that score. I'm not going to give it to Tommy Two Shoes. Okay. Um, I agree with the score, though. Sure. And I think this is, as far as, if like if you're a parent with a with a young kid, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a great film for sure, them. Sure, I think it's cute. I think it could even help maybe even like with being afraid of the dark and stuff. Because yeah. it tackles something, such a common thing that almost every single kid could relate to. Mm. Uh, it brings it into a very playful, very understandable way. Absolutely. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, where, you know, a lot of the stuff, Pixar movie turning red. Just <laughs> the it, bone to it's getting, Well, it's getting a bit of a theatrical release again. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I think it's some sort of, I don't know, Pixar. I don't know if it's... <laughs> Scraping the barrel. Well, the anniversary of it coming out. I think, I don't even now, know. Because that's now what we do uh, with movies. We but, just re-release things. <laughs> I, I couldn't help but remember how much I just had issues with the story, the tones of it. Mm, the tone of the parenting. Uh, yeah. Mm. Where this, you know, a relationship with a little boy or little kid and his fears of a dark, which is, mm-hmm. like I said, every little kid can understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a great movie to turn on. Sure. And it's a very safe movie for parents, and it's actually a little bit not so cookie-cutter. Sure. Something interesting going on. And, and a credit but, to where the story goes with the meta elements. You know, we always talk about a good kid's movie is enjoyable for all audiences yeah. and maybe has some, you know, nods to adult aspects right, for the, right. you know, the parents to enjoy. And I feel like that's where Kaufman's, you know, touch to the script comes into play, that that's the enjoyment for uh, the parents. Yeah, so. definitely. So, I think 62 is right on spot on, Vin. Oh, good. And I think, it, you know. I didn't want to be too harsh on it, you know. No, but I, no, no, no. I really do. I think yeah. that's fair, you yeah. know. So, and again, it's, if you got kids, it's a great thing to turn on. Mm-hmm. If you're running out of content, go ahead and turn it on because it's quite good. Absolutely. And if you happen to be in the room and need to watch, you're not going to be completely uh, glazed right. over. It's not going to be pulling teeth. So, okay, right. So, that's 62 for Orion and the Dark. Let's go for this week's theatrical release. This is only in theaters right now. And this is Lisa Frankenstein, directed by Zelda Williams, mm. Robin Williams' daughter. Yeah, yeah. So, we saw this together in a theater. <laughs> Embarrassing so, is so. That's well, a very embarrassing fact. We walked in and we said, nah, two, two for Lisa Frankenstein. Uh, two, two grown I revel men. in it. I enjoy it. <laughs> Listen, it wasn't that much of a theater, that's for sure. Could have <laughs> yeah, sat yeah. wherever we wanted to. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lisa Frankenstein, set it up a little bit here, Vin, and let's get into it. Uh, well, yeah, this is, this is much more teen-oriented than we would normally cover on the podcast, but um, there's a few aspects here that did interest me. Uh, like you said, Tom... Daughter of Robin Williams, Lisa Williams directs here. This is her second feature film, uh, actually, and uh, definitely the contender for the, probably the best Nintendo commercial of all time with her father. Uh, I really, uh. really loved that ad campaign. And also writer Diablo Cody, uh, who has thrived in some time making generational kind of cult teen hits like 2009's Juno. Uh, and a handful of others. Oh, okay. So wasn't aware of that. Uh, I yeah, I you know look at Diablo Cody's uh, career. Unfortunately, she, she <laughs> it's going down. You know, I mean, I feel like Juno is kind of a interesting interesting high point. Though I haven't seen the movie in a very long time. But um, with this one though, for Lisa Frankenstein, I hate to start off with some basic critiques, but I really do think they'll actually help the film a bit in, in kind of seeing who this would hit for. I would say first off, this feels 
feels a lot more like a streaming movie than a big theater release. Mm, okay. Um, you know, the hyper-stylized 80s nostalgia feels a bit behind the curve, uh, but still could live in that hardcore Stranger Things crowd that will eat up anything. Uh, Wednesday being a perfect example of, like, uh, kind of a... Uh, an 80s goth style kind of coming back into it. And of that goth style, second, the clear Tim Burton goth vibes are strong with this. It's mainly a, a rip on Corpse Bride and Edward Scissorhands, but I think for me, that's where the movie was held back a bit with jokes that are so telegraphed and done before they really belonged in the 1990s. Now, that mm, that's good can point. be a positive for the right crowd. Right. Um, if the right, you know teen goth girl crowd <laughs> but that that's where i kind of wanted to position things though you know obviously zelda williams she's she's coming out on her own she's she's uh you know this is now her second debut or second feature debut so uh i i didn't want to minimize it but uh really i feel like that kind of contains what this movie actually is you know i, I kind of get vibes of this is like early sofia coppola a little bit, oh, starting in, in kind of heavy, kind of girl-centric films. Sure, sure. Or for maybe a younger audience, a little yep. weird, that, that teen-ish. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know what's going to happen after this because this is not going to be financially successful. <laughs> but right. I can see her kind of growing into like bigger and bigger projects. Sure. Of her turning into a little Sofia Coppola sure. a little bit. Or finding her own thing. Sofia Coppola very much, mm. when we did her study, mm -hmm. you know, you got her... Uh, the DNA of her films yes, down a little bit. And absolutely. I wonder if we're going to start seeing this with, with Zelda movies as well. Yeah, uh, definitely more of a comedy focus. Um, I would say Zelda's maybe lacking a little bit of soul uh, in, in the films where okay. Coppola, uh, Sophia Coppola was, was able to, I mean, these felt so personal, all of her movies. That's very true, too. So, maybe but, it's more of a Greta Gerwig, like a young Greta Gerwig coming yeah, up maybe. a bit. Yeah, maybe, yeah. And, and especially with the with some of the writing spin, you know, uh, Cody being, you know, coming, coming from this type of teen comedy uh, uh, sphere. Mm -hmm. So, Lisa Frankenstein is that teen comedy uh, that we're referring to and, and pushes its uh, PG-13 rating for some lighthearted gore, I'll say, uh, but is so helplessly far away from October, its spooky vibes are kind of dead on arrival. Catherine Newton is a poor girl who lost her mother and seems destined for sadness. Uh, she hangs out at graveyards and writes dark poetry. When her morbid crush comes out of the ground, played by the mute Cole Sprouse in this, uh, she suddenly has something to live for, even if that may be going on a killing spree to get that body part for her new boyfriend. That's basically the setup here. It is, uh, uh, once again, I am spurred to think about poor things in that the body stitching of Willem Dafoe's character was done <laughs> so much better uh, in the Frankenstein uh, aspect of this. Acting-wise, I've mostly steer steered clear of Cole Sprouse uh, and his career, uh, especially after hearing the atrocities that that Riverdale show is. I mean, ah. Wow. I've heard some some things <laughs> how bad that is. He's really trying to do his best Johnny Depp, and again, not to overcompare to Edward Scissorhands, but it's 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 what oh, it's well, going they put after. Our main actress then, who is Catherine Newton. Ka Catherine Newton is going straight for um, Tim Burton's wife or ex-wife Helen Carter. Mm. Her in. Uh, Sweeney Todd. Oh, vibes. sure. I mean, I feel like it's sure. a one to one, and she like just naturally has this kind of dark, mm. kind of witch esque aesthetic about her. And, <laughs> yeah, like, her, yeah, yeah. Her, even when she's just doing interviews and stuff, she yeah. has a darker 
vibe attire to and stuff. Sure, sure. There's at times where they were putting Catherine Newton right in there. Yeah. Like pulled straight from that yeah, to go yeah. along with the Johnny Depp thing. Absolutely. You know, when it comes to this kind of silent acting, uh, it just it just came off as stupid, uh, especially as they slowly try to make him hotter as the movie goes on, which got the only laugh out of me, uh, the, the absurdity that this corpse is slowly getting hotter and hotter. I mean, it's... <laughs> Just ridiculous. Catherine Newton, on the other hand, is um, someone I've seen a fair amount of, uh, and I'm happy that she did get this lead role. Is her acting great? Uh, no, but I, I feel like it looked like she had uh. fun in the role. Uh, she had fun uh, compared to uh, our, our Mean Girls week, uh, how Emma Stone had fun in yeah. EZA. You know? I kind of liked her. Yeah? yeah I th- kind of thought she was good. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I think... I think uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Uh, the, the bar is low, but yeah. I also wasn't expecting a lot. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> I mean again, that, that's in the context of this feels like a streaming movie and this feels like a, a Tim Burton wannabe in a lot of ways. Yeah. That's not necessarily bad. You know, there, there can be, you know, copy room for that. Yeah. Exactly. So I would say uh, the big issue is that the comedy just falls pretty flat at every corner. Uh, There are some cute moments for sure, but the movie tries to set up a lot of jokes and I really... I, and not outside of like me not being the intended demographic, I didn't really feel like any of them hit. Um, it's a one a bit of an uphill battle for you know Sprouse not audibly acting, so Newton has to work double time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, this is where the goth style made jokes predictable and mostly unfunny. Um, so many scenes fall short of even getting air to blow out of my nose. You know, what I mean, <laughs> like it was just like. I don't know. It just in that way, it felt like the style became a burden for the film a little bit, and and mostly not disappointing on Zelda's uh, Zelda Williams directing. That's mostly disappointing on the writing from Diablo Cody. Yeah, uh, and, and where I kind of allude that uh, you look at that career, it's kind of been <laughs> flying down to Rio. <laughs> I got it. I got it. There we go. I'm not planned. <laughs> very good. Very good. No, it's not good at all. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, I don't know. What do you thought about the, the, the comedy of this? So, yeah, that was not very funny yeah. at all. Um, where it was trying, I could see. This just this movie is so meant for 13 to 16-year-old <laughs> girls. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. You know what I mean? So they would find yeah. it cute and funny and really relate to the character. Yeah. Something we cannot do. <laughs> right. So, but the comedy just straight up there as a comedy, yeah. mainly, what it was trying to function as doesn't work you're right, right. um there I, there were some smirky moments mm-hmm. um the mom is over the top the dad of mm-hmm. course is an idiot as all dads have to be now in movies sure. like this um another reason why turning red was annoying <laughs> um but the co- yeah talk about a similar father. right <laughs> um but but the interlace kind of uh horror aspects or horror theming a little bit mixed mm-hmm. in with comedy mixed into romance and sure the writing wasn't that good but I think the directing of the film also was a little bit meh. Meh. Okay. And Fair. I, I did. I walked away coming that way with that a little bit. It fell flat in areas mm. where I think it just needed a little bit more punch. Yeah. It, but also had punch in areas that were unexpected, especially yeah. the gore. That's true too. <laughs> On a PG thirteen movie. It, it did. T- that's yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. It just fell flat in some ways, in ways it just totally wasn't for us. But mm. I can't imagine that no matter for whatever audience was watching this, mm-hmm. there was missed opportunities. Right. Right. Absolutely. I think for where I come from as far as at least getting, I don't know, some mile markers to to create uh, 
some context for how to approach these films that are, are we're not the intended demographic for. Yeah. I think a great comparison case is found in, once again, our Mean Girls episode, uh, where nearly all of those films had, you know, actually really funny scenes and and, and genuinely uh, funny yeah. moments, regardless of gender or, or, or uh, you know, target market or anything like that. It's a sol- solid execution yeah. on a film, you know, when you exactly. step back and be like, that was a good movie. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just how we talk about with a, a child's animated feature, that it can hit for kids, it can hit for adults, though, yeah. and that's kind of what separates the good from the bad, uh, or the good from the mediocre. Uh, this, in just the same way, I feel like it could have separated itself in its comedic writing, and its timing as well. I think by making Lisa such an outlier, it, it forces them to write relatable jokes that feel washed out, and then the rest is relying on shock value for the second half. I'm here to say I really do think most of it didn't work, but uh, also was not outright bad. Uh, And more than anything, hoping we get to see a better showing from Zelda Williams on her next project. We're going to go ahead and give Lisa Frankenstein a 45. Wow, 45? A little bit worse than I thought. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, no, I like it. I Never think mind. a forty-five illustrates the, the middle. Of the, you know, I mean, the, the the coin toss we always talk about in yeah. like the fifties. Uh, no, no, no. But you're totally right to put it below the fifty. Yeah, to yeah. actually put it on the other side of the worst side of the coin. Actually, yeah, yep. because you're right. It really does. It does fail a little bit just because it's great for thirteen to the sixteen-year-olds, and that's it. You mm. know, it's just. It, I don't care if we're not the the uh, the proper demographic. Sure. sure. Uh, because you're, there is a better film in there. Yeah. Uh, very clearly. Yeah. So I, very much the same feelings as you. I'm not going to mm-hmm. harp on it because mm-hmm. we walked away from it just being like, okay, all right. That it was really that. was, yeah. The madness of it. Two things I will highlight, though. Okay. One, I thought the cinematography, at least, or the coloring of the film and mm-hmm. what, what Zelda did with colors. It's mm-hmm. very... Uh, pink and purpley and blue mm, and yep. and those colors kind of work a little bit. Yeah. You know, it kind of puts you in a different time a little bit. Sure, and I like that. So mm-hmm. I thought the coloring of the film was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. The Stranger or, or, Thing or, vibes, the eighties nostalgia. Yeah, and I think it it added something to it at mm-hmm. least. You know what I mean? Sure. It, it put its own little uh, uh, thumbprint on it. Another thing was I actually kind of like Catherine Newton. I thought she was she is at least. I kind of liked her acting. Mm-hmm. I thought she sold this role of this like this senior in high school role. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I I really like her. I I think that she's headed places, which is nice. She seems like she's yeah. she's getting more notoriety because she was only supporting uh, up until this, I believe. And it's kind of funny because so she, like I said, she's playing a senior in high school, and she comes across as a senior in high school really well. She mm-hmm. seems that age. Mm-hmm. I think she's in her like late twenties. Mm-hmm. She's like way closer to like our age. Oh really? So she's you know what I mean. She could be getting these larger roles now. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. like a complete up and comer. Yeah. I really liked her, though. I thought that she was kind of fun and funny. Sure. And I think the way I she mean, carried herself. I mean, it's all herself, on her shoulders, too. Yeah, and I, with... I totally agree with you. And she was having fun with the role. Yeah. And that was really nice to see. Mm-hmm. You know, just like that No Hard Feelings with Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, sure, sure. Um, I didn't see it at the time of the podcast. I saw it later. Mm. And same thing. I think she's having fun with the role. Doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily make a good movie. <laughs> right, right. But I like seeing the main character, yeah. at least, on screen. And so all props to Catherine Newton. And I hope she keeps on going a little bit. Yeah. And we see more of her. Another thing about it being, I hate, I'm going to go ahead and put my dad hat on real quick. Oh, boy. It's just like, we are dealing with high schoolers. <laughs> uh-huh. And it was way, it was more overly sexualized than I thought. <laughs> And it being geared towards 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. Well, here's a question. Uh, where do you think the line goes too far? Uh, because, again, I think the gore is in that same piece. Where do you think the PG-13 rating was pushed uh, more, in the gore or the sexuality of the film? Um, 
I would have to, I have to say both. Yeah. I guess because yeah. if you drop this down, if you drop the PG thirteen and you straight PG, because mm-hmm. it goes not like well, one scene has a lot of blood. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was I was shocked this got the PG thirteen. Yeah, you know? I, I don't know both. You couldn't have the gore and you couldn't have the sexuality of it yeah, if yeah. you drop it down a little bit for mm-hmm. eight year olds to walk in there. Right, right. I don't know. And so. Just dad hat on. That's what I have to say that. You know, and it's just very funny how I was also thinking about it this week just with Turning Red being back in theaters. Yo, right, right, right. Uh, it, was, it was. It was more sexualized than I thought. And it was borderline inappropriate. Oh, but, wow. <laughs> dad hat secured. But because um, it, it was just weird that we're dealing with, with high schoolers. I don't know. If, if we were setting them up into like young 20s, I could yep. even like, say like, okay, all right. Fair. Regardless. Fair. Dad hat off. Um <laughs> That's my main takeaways. Color- also, let, let's be clear. You're not a father either. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I feel like we're going to get it. <laughs> no, you know, whatever. <laughs> we're going to watch all baby movies uh, for the uh, <laughs> for the birthday week. <laughs> but that's it. I mean, you know, everything. I kind of concur with everything you said. Otherwise, I yeah. just thought she was. I thought she was stronger in the role than maybe you had thought. Right. Um, and like the color. Other than that, all relatively negative to mm. eh, feelings about it. Very mad. But also, you know, it probably will live once it hits uh, streaming. You know, I can it'll, see it having a little bit live. Yeah, and not only that, streaming four or five months from now, mm-hmm. okay, and we're closer to October. It could mm-hmm. having some life a little bit. Absolutely, uh, I do agree that it feels like a streaming film. It was thirteen yeah. million dollar budget, so maybe they're just hoping let's just you know juice it for as much as we can. How, sure. how can this not make a profit? Mm. We'll see if it actually does. Mm. But okay, so forty five percent from you, and this gets just gets very simply one shoe, one shoe, one shoe, no laces, no polish on it's a just corpse sitting there. I'm not angry about it. <laughs> It just is what it is kind of deal. Yeah, That's yeah. what the 45% says, too. I'm right there with you. All right, Vin. So looking at these films here, anything you want to touch on? Anything come in the coming weeks? Or are we rolling credits here? Uh, well, like we said uh, again, uh, <laughs> <laughs> avoiding Madam Web. Uh, also going to be avoiding the uh, the Bob Marley biopic. Um, but uh, after the Fred special next week, getting mainly... Into it. We're getting uh, into yeah, it. Yeah, we're getting into it. Uh, exciting uh, week uh, with Drive-Away Dolls. And uh, we're going to be kind of doing... Almost like our PTA special, a a kind of an unseen Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, love uh, it. with that specifically tackling stuff I haven't seen before, and then I mean after that we go into March. I mean, it's Dune, it's baby. It's blockbuster time. Yeah, it's Dune, Dune, Dune. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm uh, very hyped for that. Be happily rewatching, though not re-reviewing uh, the first Dune, and I would definitely encourage anyone for that. So excellent, Vin. Well, thank you so much. So we do have some. Oh, the, the movies are. It's exciting that mm-hmm. we're getting into it now. As soon as we get into March, things are really kind of getting. Exciting. Exciting. Out of the funk. And big films that we're actually excited for, that a lot of people are excited for. Uh, folks, if you're not the biggest fan of Fred Astaire, if you're not the biggest fan of old movies or these, these kinds of musicals, uh, don't forget, next week is about kind of the best of the best of Fred, the essential Fred we're kind of labeling it. Yep. So there's something there. There's something exciting there. And uh, it's kind of fun if you want to go back on YouTube or go on YouTube and kind of look up you know these these classic Fred Astaire numbers mm. uh, kind of prep for the episode it gets you a little exciting it is really good dancing is some of the best choreography in film yep uh, so it's a kind of cool that we're covering it so if you're not the biggest Fred fan of that kind of films maybe still give it a listen there's going to be something in there for you like I said I'm going to definitely kind of go through some of Fred Astaire's classic numbers mm-hmm. so I can kind of I can visualize when you're kind of talking about it a little sure, bit it's sure. awesome it's Fred Astaire uh, it's some of the best band dance numbers in the past hundred years of oh, film absolutely so, yeah. uh, excited for next week Finn uh, thank you so much for watching these films for stopping by today folks at home we'll run it down one more time 
We have Flying Down to Rio with a 64%, Body Double with a 52 Confessions of a Dangerous Mind with a 71 Orion in the Dark with a 62 and finally Lisa Frankenstein with a one shoe and a 45%. Folks, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Daily Ratings Podcast. Hey, if you enjoyed the podcast, if you would, give us a good rating or get the word out and tell a friend about us. And just a reminder, folks, that The Daily Ratings is completely producer-supported. We want to stay away from advertising, and we don't want to have any paywalls or tier structures or subscriptions. It's all just value for value. So are you finding value in any of the things that we're doing here at The Daily Ratings? Then become a producer and donate whatever amount of value that is. Just go to the Donations tab on thedailyratings.com, and while you're there, be sure to check out the massive amount of films Vince has rated for us. So thanks so much, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast.